Just a quick uh, disclaimer before anyone gets lost. We've been working through the book of Psalms slowly and but surely. We, uh, we hope, Lord willing, to work through all 150 Psalms over the course of time uh, with uh, not straight through, with different breaks of different sermon series as we work through different books of the Bible. But we've been working through starting at number one, and today we find ourselves in chapter 22. Now, you may know... Uh, kind of things that shook down last week. Josiah had prepared to preach on Psalm 21 and then was not able to be here. And so uh, we are skipping Psalm 21, but don't worry, we're not skipping it. Uh, We will get to it just slightly out of order. Uh, So the next time Josiah preaches, he'll be bringing us uh, his message uh, from Psalm 21. So don't worry, we're not just jumping over things, okay? But this morning we are in Psalm 22. And I hope the words that I share with you this morning, I hope that you remember them. But I am fairly confident, my best guess would be, that even if you remember the gist of this sermon on Psalm 22, you likely won't remember exact phrases or uh, have things specifically word for word that I say that will be just grafted into your mind. In that way, I think words are like nails, They have the ability to affect us, uh, but words don't uh, often have holding power. Songs, though, are different. If words are like nails, I think songs are like screws. Uh, They have this ability to twist themselves into our minds and into our lives, and they have this ability to just stay there. They've got holding power. That's why certain songs have the ability to evoke certain emotions or memories. If you think of us, if you hear a song, it might remind you of a, a time where, you know, you listen to that song on repeat. It was the song of the summer, you know, and you remember that. Uh, it, it's an interesting experiment. If you ever want to just get to know someone, ask them, hey, what were the songs you listened to in high school? And get them to play them for you and just watch the waves of emotions go over this person, highs and lows and everything. Songs have this uh, intense ability to twist themselves into our lives They've got holding power. You may think, too, of of another example is maybe think of a familiar song. You might hear one line of it, and your brain instantly can fill in the rest. And so you may think, uh, I mean, it's probably a big spectrum of songs that we might know around here, but you might think of a a famous song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. You might be able to fill, your your brain instantly goes, that saved a wretch like me. You You can fill in those gaps because... Songs are like screws. They, they twist themselves into our lives, and they, they stay there. It's the reason why Christians have been a singing people, always. Lyrics set to music stay with us. This is not new. God's people have always been a singing people. And the book of Psalms that we're working through is a book, a collection of poetry and songs that God's people have been singing for millennia. And the reason I say all of this is because the psalm that we are looking at this morning, Psalm 22, is likely best known as the psalm or the song that Jesus quotes right before his death. He quotes from this song. Now, Jesus could have said so much while he was dying there in agony. But what he said was the first lines of this psalm. As he hangs there, as he's betrayed, mocked, beaten, in the process of being tortured. When the hour came where he would die, he cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He's crying out to God while utterly alone there on the cross. He is literally nailed to a piece of wood. He's hung there to die. The physical pain of the cross was absolutely beyond comprehension. Crucifixion was torture perfected. You wouldn't die of blood loss. You would die of exhaustion and asphyxiation. As you hung there in that way, it, was, it became increasingly difficult to labor to get a breath. And then the person being crucified would be faced with this horrible crossroads where they would need to take a breath. Your body is starved of oxygen. And the only way that they could do that is by pushing up on the nails that pinned their hands and their feet to the cross. The more you think about crucifixion, the more horrifying it is. But shockingly, the physical pain that drove Jesus to cry out to God and ask him why he was being forsaken, forgotten, or abandoned was not because of the physical pain. As hard as it is for us to comprehend, something even worse was happening to Jesus when he died for us. Something even sicker than physical torture. At that moment, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was taking the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. Sin is rebellion, plain and simple. It is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. And God is perfect. God is holy. And when we sin, we create this wall between us and God, a perfect and holy God and sinful us. And as the Bible is very clear, we all have sinned. We all have turned our own way. We all have rebelled against God. And the result of that sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God. But the gospel, which literally means good news, is that God would make a way for that debt to be paid. That we wouldn't have to face this eternal separation from God. In his mercy, God sent his own son into the world to live a perfect and sinless life. He was the only one in all of history who didn't deserve death. There was no wall of separation between the Son and the Father. And yet the entire purpose of his coming was to come and die. To call people to trust in him and his sacrifice. And to be the perfect substitution. And to take the place of sinners in exchange for his perfection, his righteousness credited to those who would trust in him. And it's that lens that we need to look through as we think about the cross, not just the physical pain and agony that Jesus undeniably experienced, but by him taking on the sin that separates us from God, he willingly stood in our place and in that moment bore the full weight of that sin that separates and so he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the greatest act of injustice in all of history. And in that moment, what Jesus calls to mind for those around him and for us today is this song that had been sung for a thousand years before Jesus was born, lived, and died. Psalm 22 is written by King David. It is a song of the desperate and innocent sufferer. It's a song that vividly describes the pain of feeling abandoned, feeling forsaken by God himself. And it's a song that 
doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay there. Through David's experience in Psalm 22, we find words that express these feelings of forsakenness, but we also find words that have a deep expression of trust. The God who is holy, the God who is faithful. He has proved himself over and over. And in Psalm 22, we see that God sees and hears the cries of the afflicted. This is a sweet hope for each and every one of us today as we consider the reality of our own lives. Because the Bible doesn't give false advertising, doesn't sugarcoat things. We don't get an airbrushed image of the the perfect life that we could have by getting our act together. Psalm 22 doesn't pull punches. It is very real about the real suffering that we can experience and feel. But it does offer us rich hope. Rich hope. Not only hope that uh, we experience as we go through suffering, but hope that is grounded in the perfect, innocent sufferer who cried out to God to make a way for us not to be forsaken. Derek Kidner writes, No Christian can read Psalm 22 without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. And so the big idea that I want you to remember from today is this. The cross proclaims that you are not forsaken. The cross proclaims that you are not forsaken. Listen as I read God's holy and true word and look for those cries of desperation. Look for those affirmations of who God is, what he's done, and the response of praise that comes as we learn about what God has done. Just a few notes before we dive in. Uh, There is a a title or a a little introduction you'll see in your Bible, Psalm 22. Uh, It says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. And so we see from that a couple clues. To the choir master, this was a song that was to be sung. Uh, According to the doe of the dawn, a lot of scholars think that this is uh, another song. And so it's sort of like set to the tune of this. So you may uh, be familiar with that where, you know, you see a song and says, Sing this to the tune of whatever. Uh, And then it's a psalm of David, as we already mentioned. Then as I read through, uh, you'll see that God is referred to in a few different words. Uh, And as we often do here, uh, I often read where we see LORD in all caps uh, is where the original author would have used God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. And so as we get to those, don't be surprised if I say Yahweh. Don't get it right all the time because it says Lord. And so uh, it's not wrong to do it one way or the other. But uh, I've been personally encouraged, and I think you will be too, uh, to use the words that the psalmist wrote. So let's hear God's word. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. 
who made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me down in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not himself, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive posterity shall serve him it shall be told of the lord in the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it this is god's word thanks be to god i want to consider psalm 22 in just two broad ideas i know There's a lot of verses in there. There's a lot happening there, but I want to just look at two broad ideas. I think Psalm 22 breaks down easily to explain both our greatest fear and our greatest hope. Our greatest fear and our greatest hope. What is your greatest fear? I'm sure you've all been asked that question one time or another, and I'm sure we would have a whole spectrum of answers could list a whole bunch of phobias. I don't know the technical phobia names to all these, but you might be afraid of heights or spiders or snakes or bees or the dark or public speaking or confined spaces or rejection or even death. The question I want to ask this morning is even a a slightly uh, level deeper than what is your greatest fear. I want to ask this question. I want to ask what ought to be your greatest fear? What is actually the most fearful thing you could possibly imagine? Now, I know that that is not a fun question to ask. That is not a fun question to think about. And I would say our culture does a great job of trying to squash down this question. We love to avoid these kinds of questions. What ought to be your greatest fear? But I believe it matters very much that we answer this question. 
And in Psalm 22, we see a whole slew of fears that are listed. We see slander, physical attack, mockery. It's pretty dark at times. I think, though, the greatest fear that's exposed in the text is exactly what Jesus quotes and what we see in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now, most of us in this room have assurance, have a hope that casts out this kind of fear. But I want you to imagine, if you have that kind of hope, I want you to imagine for a second what it would mean if you didn't know Jesus. What it would mean to not have that kind of hope. And if you're here this morning and you don't have that kind of hope, I think we could consider these verses and, and agree that if there is a God who created the universe and sustains the universe, our greatest fear ought to be being forsaken by him. Now, kids, we don't use the word forsaken very often. I don't know if you could uh, think of the last time you said forsaken in a sentence, uh, but this passage uses forsaken, so I'm using the word forsaken. When I, mean, when I say forsaken, what I mean is, is being abandoned, being forgotten, being rejected. And so for all of us to consider, what ought to be our greatest fear? Well, if God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, forgot us or rejected us, I think we could agree, I think most of us could agree, that that, it just couldn't get worse than that. That is the worst case scenario. Because God created us to be in a right relationship with him. He created us in his image to glorify him to live in line with his word and his instruction. Now, this isn't arrogant of God. God is God. We are his creation. And so we have no business living as if we were God. Yet, that's exactly how we spend a lot of our time. That's exactly how we live. That's exactly what sin is. We, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. What he tells us to do, we fail to do. What he tells us not to do, we actively and eagerly pursue. And that's what we've done each and every time we sin. We forsake God. We forget him. We reject him. And already you can probably see the tension of what I'm talking about. Because uh, the claim I've made is that our greatest fear ought to be separation from God. Yet the way that we live, because we sin, that's what we're asking for. When we sin, we are, we are the ones taking the step to separate ourselves from God and his perfection. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Because God is not a finger-waving dictator. He's a father who loves and cares for his creation. But as we hover in these first two verses, we see and experience the, the, the tension that's felt here, the weight of this claim, the weight of these questions, this is a real feeling, a feeling forsaken. We don't know what was going on in David's life that caused him to write these words, but it is a real question. It's a real question because suffering is real. Suffering is real. Because of sin and the disorder and brokenness that comes with it, we all live in this disordered world. And there are times that you may be able to think of in your own life where you have felt forgotten by God, where these words feel and sound familiar. God, 
where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Why aren't you hearing me? I am well aware that those words and questions are familiar to many of you here this morning. Maybe even this year. Maybe even this week. Maybe even this morning. If you aren't praying these kinds of prayers, or you never have, this is going to sound real doom and gloom. I'd say you will. There are times because of the the fallenness that that we know experientially, uh, because of our own sin and because of the sin of of all people, we, we live in this world tainted by sin. And so this feeling of feeling forgotten and forsaken is a real experience. Now, hear me clearly. This does not mean that all suffering is a consequence, a direct consequence of personal sin. Please don't hear me say that. Because in Psalm 22, we get no impression of that. If anything, it is the psalm of the innocent sufferer. But no matter what, because of sin, because of this disorder, things are not the way it's supposed to be. And this leads to this kind of suffering. It leads to these kinds of prayers. But Psalms like this teach us that we can go to God. We can lament with heartfelt honesty. We don't have to smooth talk God. He knows us. He knows your victories. He knows your losses. He knows you. He knows every sin, every failing, every frustration, every bit of anger, everything. And he still, he wants us to go to him. It's a good reminder for us this morning. But look, this psalm does not end at verse 2, which is good news. get this pattern in this first chunk of verses it doesn't all just get happy clappy from here on out but we get this pattern of this sort of call and response that david is having this internal dialogue in his own mind uh, where he goes back and forth back and forth uh, with these questions He, he this this cry to god and then this repeated affirmation of who god is these repeated calls for god to act we see that in verses two through five We get just a little bit of the the cry for help. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. After this crying out to God, there's this affirmation of, of his holiness and of his past faithfulness. And when he talks about Israel here and fathers, he's simply talking about God's people who have gone before him. But we see how even in this psalm, there's a hope that stretches far beyond uh, just a national hope for David and his people. But we'll get there. That's at the very end. We'll see that in this moment, what David's doing, he's affirming God's character. He's saying, yet, you are holy. You are holy. then he goes on to say these profound words where he looks at the lives of others right and you our fathers trusted and you delivered them to you they cried and they were rescued and you they trusted they were not put to shame you see that this doesn't make problems go away but this is an important nugget in the passage for us to consider when you are in the midst of trials and suffering when you feel forsaken by god It is wise to pull back that lens 
to open up that viewfinder and remember God's past faithfulness. This is what David does here. Do what he does when you're in the midst of suffering and consider God's faithfulness throughout history. Read the Bible and consider who God is and how he's rescued his people time and time again. And the Bible must be your primary source in this. But also look at the lives of others. Read good biographies. Be encouraged by the resiliency of of Charles Simeon. Be strengthened by the faith of George Mueller. Be inspired by the bravery and boldness of missionaries like John Payton, Amy Carmichael, and Adoniram Judson. If those names don't sound familiar to you, take that as an extra nudge to read some good biographies. I'm confident that you would be encouraged. It's on those dark days when you feel forgotten. You can know that God did not forget Charles Simeon as he faced decades of mockery, slander, and attack. You can reflect on how God did not forsake George Mueller as he faced this humanly impossible task. These humanly impossible to overcome obstacles and starting orphanages that would eventually lead to over 10,000 children going through them during his lifetime. You can reflect on the lives of Peyton and Carmichael and Judson and consider the ways that God did not forget them when they were taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But don't stop there. Share evidence of God's grace and his, his faithfulness in your own life with one another. This is why it's essential that we don't fall for the lie that we can live the Christian life on a solo mission. There is no category in the Bible for a lone ranger Christian. We need brothers and sisters to hold us up. And the way that God has designed that to happen is in the context of a local church. We need others to remind us of who God is and what he's done. Because on those days when you feel alone, that's when we need help. One of the most common commands in Scripture is to remember. Remember. This is what David's doing here. He's remembering who God is. He's remembering what he has done. And if you're anything like me, you need help remembering things. Whether that's the smallest grocery list type things that you forget. And uh, I went to the grocery store this week. I was supposed to get two things, and I forgot one of them. So we need help remembering, right? But especially on those days when you're suffering. When you feel forgotten, there is nothing like feeling your knees buckle in a metaphorical battle and a shield coming up next to your shield. There's nothing like pressing on forward and having someone link arms with you. That's what we need each other for. We need to remember. And you need that on the good days, and you especially need that on the dark days. Now, if you're here this morning and your prayer ends in verse 2, feeling forgotten, I want you to please come talk to me or talk to someone around you after the service because you may very well feel forgotten, but you need to know that's simply not the end of the story. What we'll see, though, through this passage, this back and forth continues. Then David gets real heavy again in verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. Feels like a worm. Doesn't get much lower than a worm. Then what does he say? Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. He's the victim of mockery. He 
He feels forgotten in verses 1 and 2. Then he affirms who God is and what God has done before. He kind of gathers up some strength and he gets that thrown right back in his face. Say, you trusting God? Yeah. Well, have at it. Keep on trusting away. Gets it thrown back in his face. But we see again, that's not the end of the story. He looks at another facet of God's faithfulness. Not just God's faithfulness in others' lives, in those that have gone before him. We get another yet in verse 9. And David considers how he is not a worm. In fact, he is cared for by God. God has carried him, nurtured him. And he uses these powerful metaphors of, of birth and of the, the care of a mother sustaining him. When he was in his most vulnerable, weak state. And so we see this back and forth. What's the message of Psalm 22 so far? It's God, I feel alone. But you haven't abandoned your people before. God, I feel like a worm that is mocked and slandered and ridiculed. But you've cared for me and my weakness before. And then we see in verses 11 and verses 19, David crying out to God for help. Very similar requests in both of those verses. And then we see that sandwiching description of all that he's facing. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. That's an area that's just very fertile, and the, uh, as silly as it sounds, the cows, the bulls there were monstrous. They were strong and powerful. So he's saying not just like some scrawny cow is encompassing me. These are like powerful bulls. Strong, uh, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's a, a broken pot, a piece of a broken pot. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me down, uh, lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And the prayer continues. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then all of a sudden, the story turns. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David has been rescued in some way, shape, or form. And there's still, there's sort of this tension that, hey, not everything's answered here, but there's uh, this glimmer of hope that starts to shine through. And again, this poem is not necessarily a biographical account of uh, David's experience of a certain situation. Uh, we don't know the situation in David's life that, that spurred the psalm, but we see the way that he's affirmed God's character and faithfulness of those that have gone before him. We see him affirm God's character and faithfulness in his own life as he grew and we see here, God is faithful to him. David has come face to face with his greatest fear, or at least what ought to be his greatest fear. Separation from a loving God, being forsaken by God. But it's from that place of this greatest fear that we see this dramatic turn to our second point this morning. Our greatest hope. Our greatest hope. We see this explicitly in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So the question posed in verse 1, God, why have you forsaken me? The answer, he hasn't. 
And this response here that's captured in this whole second section of the psalm, verses 22 to 31, is one of praise. God has not forgotten, and therefore, that is why we praise him. You can see that that's the clear explanation here. And it, we start in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Then why are we praising? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat bread, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. So what is the message here from Psalm 22? Is it hold on long enough? And all your problems will go away? No. That is not the message of Psalm 22. It doesn't take long to see in your own life that suffering does not always melt away. Suffering is real. Psalm 22, again, doesn't even give this picture that every single one of David's problems go away. We see a little kind of glimmer of deliverance. But we see that his greatest fear is we see this greatest hope overcoming this greatest fear. That's the hope in the passage. That's the antithesis to the greatest fear. And remember, we can't read Psalm 22 without seeing the foreshadowing of a truly innocent one who would come. Jesus had many close friends as he lived his life on earth. And one of those close friends is a man named Matthew. I want to read a section of Matthew's eyewitness account of Jesus' life and death. And I want you to notice how Psalm 22 paints a picture for us of this truly innocent and afflicted one who offers the greatest hope to what ought to be our greatest fear. So here as I read from Matthew chapter 27. I'll be reading verses 27 through 50. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, G King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by the name, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. He desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now uh, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Friends, whether we acknowledge it or not, our greatest fear ought to be separation from a God who loves us deeply. But the sentence that stands over us is is not even just physical death. It is spiritual death. We get what we ask for. Because we sin, we willingly forget God. But the good news of Psalm 22 is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the whole Bible. It's that although we live in ways that so readily forget God, he has not forgotten us. Although we live in ways that so readily forsake God, he has not forsaken us. He sent the truly innocent one who took on our greatest fear and offers us our greatest hope. He stared death in the face and he walked straight towards it on your behalf. He was mocked, he was taunted, he was betrayed, and he was assaulted. His hands and feet were pierced. He was treated like a worm even though he is the king. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there he paid for every sin and every failure. Even though he was the one who himself never sinned. When he hung there alone on the cross, he was alone so that you would only ever have to feel alone. He was forsaken so that you would only ever have to feel forsaken. But even that isn't the end of the story because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and he was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. In his rising, he defeated death itself. His resurrection demonstrated that God's just wrath against sin had been satisfied. The debt had been paid. God's mercy is displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the greatest hope that you could ever imagine is held out to you by turning from your sin and trusting in what Jesus has done, your greatest hope. Fear can be exchanged for the world's greatest hope. We will still know suffering on this side of eternity. But the good news is that we will not be forsaken. The cross proclaims that you have not been forsaken if you are in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know this truth for yourself, friend, I cannot express to you enough how good of news this is for you today. You don't have to live in fear. Death has lost its sting and its power because of what Jesus has done. He's made a way for you to know real hope, peace with God. Not because you were good enough to earn it, but because he was good enough. And he holds this out to you. Turn from your sin today and trust in Jesus. And Christian, We don't outgrow the gospel. The amazing hope of the gospel is that we will continue to sin and fall. And although 
we continue to feel the effects of sin in our world and in its fallenness, the gospel proclaims daily that you and I are not forsaken. Rest in that hope today. And encourage each other with this hope, even today. How has God been at work in your life and in the lives of others? Why not share that with somebody this morning after the service? And consider the response of the greatest hope that we see here in Psalm 22. The whole psalm ends with praise. God's people respond with praise as they consider how he has not forsaken the afflicted one. This is why we sing songs. It screws these truths into our minds and into our hearts. These truths that proclaim the gospel glorifies God. It encourages one another. This is why it serves the whole church for us to be here, to be present, to worship together, to commit to one another. And the impression I get from the way David is exhorting his hearers of this psalm is not to be singing these praises with stone-cold faces and whispering voices. This is a declaration of praise that's a response, from a, a response from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. As we think about that, I wonder how that changes the way we worship together. And finally, we see that this is not just some hope. This is our greatest hope. The last few verses of this psalm expand uh, this vision of praise that is so much more than just good news for Israel under David's reign. We see in verse 27 that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. This is more than national hope. Verse 29 gives us this contrast of the greatest to the least who will bow before God. This is more than hope that's based on social status. And in verses 30 to 31 shows us that this is not simply immediate hope. This is hope that extends beyond the lives of David and his hearers. We see this as a multi-generational good news. This is a, a hope that stretches beyond generations. The gospel is good news that is not bound by race, it's not bound by status, and it's not even bound by generation. The good news is good news, period. The greatest hope is greatest hope, period. And Psalm 22 ends almost as abruptly as it begins, and the contrast is shocking. It starts with this cry of the innocent sufferer who feels forsaken by God. And it ends with praise that stretches into the future. The finality of the hope in Psalm 22 is as certain as Jesus' last words on the cross when he said, it is finished. This greatest hope is the gospel. It's good news that if you are in Christ, you will not be forsaken because God has sent his son in his righteousness to be forsaken for you. You have been saved. It is finished. He has done it. It was finished on the cross. Let's pray. God, we are amazed at the hope that the gospel extends to us. Those who deserve to be forsaken by you. You've somehow given us the privilege through Christ to proclaim that we are not forsaken. Change us by this amazing truth. In Jesus' name, amen. God has made it clear in his word that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ.